the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, Drive out this slave with her son, for the son of the slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. Now this was a very difficult thing for Abraham because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be concerned about the boy and your slave. Whatever Sarah says to do, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. But I will also make a nation of the slave's son, because he is your offspring. Early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders, and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba, where the water and the skin was gone. She left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away. For she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. So as she sat nearby, she wept loudly. God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy up, and support him, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The sovereign God who sees. How many of you know who Ronald Wayne is? Raise your hand if you know who Ronald Wayne is. One, I'm impressed, very impressed, uh, and the two-year-old. Uh, Ronald Wayne, <laughs> how about the name Steve Wozniak? How about the name Steve Jobs? <laughs> so, m most people don't know there were three partners originally when Apple was started. And one of them was named Ronald Wayne. He was the older of the three partners. He was the one that was brought in to write up the contracts and put the company together. But what you, the reason you don't know about Ronald Wayne today is because after about 12, 12 days after they signed all the agreements and they got started, and uh, they actually had a lot of orders uh, for, for, at the time. Uh, they had thousands of dollars of orders. Ronald Wayne kind of go, got overwhelmed and thought, I don't want to be a part of this. I've been a part of a business that didn't make it before, and I want out. So for $800, he sold his portion of Apple back to Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. And then about 18 months later, after the company was doing okay, still not, nobody knows who Apple is, he sold all of his rights for $1,500. So for $2,300, he sold what would now, which now I just saw, I just saw the estimate for September of 2018, would be worth $100 billion dollars. That's saying he didn't spend any of it. $100 billion, which is more than um, about 60% of the countries in the world today. So what happened? Well, Ronald Wayne couldn't see what was going to happen. <laughs> he could only see right here, and it made him nervous. It didn't look right. He was with two mid-20s 
kids who were high-tech guys who didn't seem to understand all the implications and all the intricacies of business, and he decided, I want out. I'll take the 800 bucks, and I'll get out. Matter of fact, I'll even sign all of my rights to have any part of this company for for $1,500 more, and for $2,300, he got out because he could not see past the immediate concern that he had. And the truth to be told, many of us might qualify just as well. And we're looking at a story today about Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar and Ishmael. And the principle is this. We have a God who's sovereign and watches over us. We have a God who is sovereign in control and sees not just today, but the future. And we can trust him. Now, before we get into this text, I think it's important for us to understand there are two basic forms of Scripture that I think are, are, we would do well to remember and to understand because this is one of those stories when you read it, sometimes people go, good night. Why were those guys doing that? That's why I don't like the Bible because of people like that. And the Bible says I'm supposed to follow people like that. I'm supposed to be like that. Actually, the Scripture doesn't say that. doesn't say that at all. You see, some people have the misunderstanding and the misperception that the Bible is this. It's a book of rules that tell you exactly what to do, and all the people are descriptions of how we should model our lives. It's a model book, and it's a description. It's an example, and it's the teaching of exactly what we should be, and we should be just like them. That's not what the Bible is at all. The Bible has sections of Scripture called prescriptive Scripture, which means this is what we're supposed to do. So the Ten Commandments would be great prescriptive Scripture. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's prescriptive Scripture. But much of the Bible is not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's describing what happened. It's describing how sinful humanity left of their own devices will make horrible choices and put themselves in situations that God never intended. Much of the Bible is a description, and that's what we're going to see. We're going to see a description of three people, really, of Abraham and of Sarah and even Hagar, who made some bad descriptions, bad decisions, and it's descriptive. God is not saying, go out and be like Abraham in this instance. That's what I love about the scripture. It just shows all the frailty, all um, the depravity of humanity, and says this is what happened with some of the scripture, some of the people of scripture. Some of them who would be regarded as patriarchs of the faith, and other who just made a lot of bad decisions. And the the need for the gospel is this, because left our own devices, we will fall each into that depravity. So God made a way for us to be forgiven and to cleansed of our sins through Jesus Christ, and thus the need of the gospel, because of our fallenness, because of our depravity. And the truth be told, Abraham and Sarah are a lot like you and me. We still own the same depravity. We've just been able to make it look a lot nicer. We've been able to clean up real well, and we tell better stories now, and we try to make ourselves appear better. But the truth be told, it's descriptive so that we see in ourselves and we see our nature played out before us. So remember that when you're reading Scripture. Not everything is thus go fulfill the Lord. We know we aren't supposed to fulfill what David did when he committed adultery. No one would say that's prescriptive. We would say that's descriptive. So as we look at this passage, let's remember that it's descriptive primarily and not prescriptive. Now with that 
understanding, we're going to look at Genesis 16 here in just a moment. And we're going to see four mistakes that each of these three characters make. First of all, we'll see that they're faithless. Number two, um, another mistake they'll make is being impatient. Another mistake will be prideful. And then a final mistake is they'll quit. They'll quit God's program. They'll quit God's plan and go their own direction. So we see faithless, impatience, prideful, and quitting. Again, those aren't prescriptions. Those are descriptions, all right? So as we look at this, I think it's important for us to understand this text and understand that in light, that light. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. And we're just going to call Sarah and Abraham. Their names are about to get changed anyway. And so just to make it simple for you, I'm going to call them Sarah and Abraham. All right. So Sarah and Abraham's wife had borne him no children. She had a female servant whose name was Hagar. Now let's stop right there with verse one. Because we're going to read this. And again, it looks very primitive and it looks very harsh because what's being stated here. What's being stated is the cultural understanding of how people would have viewed themselves in that day, in particular, Sarah, particularly women. <clears throat> now, we like to think that our culture today is so advanced and that we're so educated and we're so smart and we do such a good job and we don't deal and thank goodness we don't deal with these biases and prejudice that the cultures back then did. I'm so glad the way that we look at women today, we, we, we look at them in great honor, don't we, from a cultural standpoint. Well, I don't know that our culture does, to be honest with you. Because what does our culture say? Our culture said, you know what? If you're really going to be a woman, a woman of respect, then you should look a certain way. You should dress a certain way. You should act a certain way. You should have certain clothes. You should have certain education. We still do it today. We still, the culture still defines what is of value today. And it usually not nearly as intrinsic as we want to believe. Look at the commercials as you leave here today. If you look at signs, if you look at television, if you listen to the radio, what does our culture say women should be? Sharp, dressed right, educated, successful, good looking. There's a certain shape. That's what our culture says. Can I tell you that they would probably think that was barbaric back in the East, back in the ancient time. Really? That's how you're going to decide value? That's gonna how, you, how you're going to decide worth? Why? Because we live in a very individualistic culture. It's about the individual. But in the ancient East, and still today even in the East, it's about the family. So what was most important for them was the family. And so if you're a woman, your primary value and worth was measured this way, by your children did you have children because your children were your wealth that that was your social security plan there wasn't social security your children you were going to raise them and those boys and those they were going to take care of you later that's who was going to take care of you that's whom you would live with that's who would provide your substance so it was a big deal that you had children forget even the family line so children were very important to women and the culture looked at them in that manner. And if you had no children, many cultures believe you were cursed by God. If you had many children, it means you were blessed by God. So this is the culture that Sarah's living in. And the Bible says, and Sarah said to Abraham, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from having children. You think she's a little bit bitter? 
You think she's a little bit mad? God has prevented me from having children. So go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children from her. Again, turning to her culture. In her culture, particularly in the Arabian Peninsula, particularly in the Mesopotamian area, that whole, that whole section of the East, it, different people groups, they all ascribe to this, or most all of them ascribe to this, look, if you couldn't have a child, then you could take one of your servants and your husband could have a child by him, and that would be your child. If you went two, three, four years and you weren't able to have a child, then this was an accepted practice. It was a part of the culture. So Sarah's saying, I know God has given a promise to you, Abraham. I know God has given us a promise that we will have a son, that we will have a child. But he's not come through with that. He's not making good on that. So we need to help him. And he must think that we can do this through our servants. So let's go ahead and get the ball rolling right now. And so I will give you my servant, whom they probably received when they were in Egypt from the Pharaoh, and you can have a child by her, and this will be our offspring. The covenant promise will be fulfilled in this manner. So she's helping God. But the Bible says, as it goes on, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Even though he had been given the covenant promise by God, he listens and says, okay. So he also Uh, In their pride, thinking everybody knows this, nothing has happened, he quits God's plan as well. Sarah's quit the plan. And so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah and Abram took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So this will be your secondary wife. You will receive some rights now. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived... She looked with contempt on her mistress. What's happening here? Well, here's Hagar, who's really never had any status other than she's the servant girl, but now she's been made the wife. And not only that, she is now carrying Abraham's child. And at that point, she starts to look at Sarah differently. Remember, Sarah must be cursed by God. I'm blessed by God. I have a child. And here, the servant who would have typically only looked down or looked beside her mistress now she looks her in the eye she tilts her head and she has a sense of pride and she begins to talk to her uh, to her mistress to Sarah in a manner in which she never had before and the Bible says Sarah is upset now she says to Abraham may the wrong done to me by you I'm just trying to help What do you think I've gotten out of this whole deal, Abraham? I gave you my servant to you embrace, and when you saw that she conceived, now she looks looks at me dishonorably, with contempt, with disdain. May the Lord judge between you and me. I know she's your wife, but something's going to have to be done. And Abraham, again, being the strong, godly man he is, he goes... But he says, behold, it's your servant. <laughs> you do what you need to do. This is, this is your, your assistant. You, you, you take care of her. The pride, the ego. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. She dealt harshly with her. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but we can guess what harshly means in this instance. It's the same Hebrew word that is used in Exodus 
when the Bible tells us that the Egyptians treated the Hebrews harshly. At a minimum, there is verbal and emotional abuse, maybe even physical abuse. But remember, she's looking at her mistress with disdain. And we go, how primitive, how primitive. Again, this isn't a prescription. This is a description of what happened. A description of what happened when you don't do it God's way and you decide to go off and do it on your own. The Bible says, as we continue here, the angel of the Lord found her, and he's talking, talking about Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord, and by the way, the angel of the Lord, some believe this to be a Christophany, in other words, a personification of Christ. Uh, other believe it's simply an angel direct from God, speaking directly for God. Uh, regardless, this is the word of God. This is being spoken, his word. And the angel said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. That word means to honor her, give her respect. See, Sarah, Hagar, one of the problems, mistakes that you've made is you've decided to be disrespectful, dishonoring. I want you to go back and I want you to submit. I want you to honor. I want you to respect her. And the angel said, and I, if you will do this, I will multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now, any, Ishmael, anytime you see those letters E-L, that is God, okay? You will see, like El Shaddai, if we go ahead and we start reading in chapter 17, I am the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai, God Almighty, El. So Ishmael, mean Ishma, means to listen or to hear, the God who hears. That's what Ishmael's name means, the God who hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction, and he shall be a wild, and here's the prophecy of who he will be. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand shall be against everyone. Everyone's hand will be against him. Now, just for a moment, let's go back and let's look at some historical information to help us understand who Ishmael is. Now, We've got the, great, the two great patriarchs of the faith. We mentioned this last week that most of the world regards, from a religious standpoint, Abraham and Sarah as the patriarch and the matriarch of their faith, the originators of their faith, the two individuals that God used to birth their faith. So who's that? Well, certainly it's Judaism. So this is where the Jews arrive from. Then as Christianity, we obviously have piggybacked, we have adopted, we have received the covenant grace of God through Jesus Christ. And uh, we now see uh, that Jesus Christ is a direct descendant, an heir from Abraham and Sarah. And also Islam does. Now the difference would be this. Now you have Abraham and Sarah, and they have a son named what? Isaac, which means laughter. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and then from Jacob come the 12 tribes. Thus, we see the Hebrew people. So we see Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, the, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, okay? So that's one side. But on the other side, on not the Sarah side, but now Abraham, because of uh, Sarah's dis disobedience, Abraham has a child named 
Ishmael. And from Ishmael comes the lineage that Mohammed said, as he comes 600 years after Christ, he traces his lineage all the way back to Ishmael. Thus, the Muslim, the nation of Islam, or the religion of Islam. Now, I will tell you, it's not every Arab and everybody in the East did all not come from Ishmael, but we know many of them did, and we know, according to, if you take uh, Muhammad, who starts the, the, the religion of Islam, he himself traces his lineage back to Ishmael. And we see the prophecy here 2,500 years before. What does it say? He says, He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand shall be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him continue, and he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. You see, they were originally half-brothers. And what does that prophecy say? What's going on in the Mideast right now? So, she called the name of the Lord and spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. The name specifically here is El Rai. We sometimes use El Roy because it's O-R-I. E-L-R-O-I. El Roy. You are the God who sees. You see my affliction. You see where I am. You understand. You are the God of seeing, she said. Truly here. I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well called Berlaharoi, it lies between Kadesh and Bered, and Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Abram bore, Ishmael, the God who hears, the God who listens. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram, or Abraham. So we see... This story gives a description of three individuals who struggled, just like we do, with faith, not being faithful to the end, but hearing the promise, but becoming impatient, and then becoming prideful, and then quitting and taking their own direction, going their own way. I was reading an article this week uh, by a gentleman uh, named... Um, Dan Arley, and he's a, research develop- he's a researcher, he's a professor, and what he found is he's been doing this study on how people make decisions and how they go about this process, and he entitled his book, uh, Predictably Irrational, and he said, let me give you an, an understanding of the way most people finally make their final decisions. He said, they do it by what they actually want. He said, I'll give you a good example. He said, I decided a few years ago that I needed to buy a new car. My car was pretty much given out, and I thought, I want some kind of sporty, nice-looking car that I can drive because that's kind of what I wanted. But I found this software. It said, hey, I will show you exactly what you need, exactly what you want, and, and, and we'll fit your budget. So he typed in this auto, automobile software. He put all the needs of his family in, everything that he wanted, and everything occurred. And when he got it back, it said, you need to buy a Ford Taurus. And he thought to himself, I don't want a Ford Taurus. <laughs> so he said, what did I do? I went back and I retook it again. And this time I changed a lot of the answers. And when I got through, I had a sports car. <laughs> and I'd use the software. He said, that's, an exact, that's exactly how most people do it. It's not about what you really need. It's about what you want. And what you want so consumes you that you rearrange reality to fit your nature. And that's what Scripture tells us exactly we do. Um, I, I was reading an article, and as a matter of fact, I've had, had this same story happen with a friend of mine. This lady, who was a, a godly woman, she, uh, she wanted another house. 
and she'd been dreaming about this house, and she'd been praying about this house, and she decided to put her house up for sale, and, and uh, while she was looking, she found the perfect house. It had the exact number of bathrooms, the rooms, the look, everything that she wanted. It was just a few neighborhoods over, and it was a little more than she wanted to expense, but she prayed about it, and she felt a peace, and she felt, I'm going to do this. But then she realized her house wasn't selling, and this house was going to sell, so she went ahead and bought that house anyway, having not sold her home. Well, guess what happened? She gets into that new home. She's so excited, but then she can't sell this home. So then she starts going through her savings. Then she starts dipping into retirement. And finally, she sells that house at a loss, and she's lost almost everything. And she was saying to her pastor, she goes, how could that be? I felt like God gave me such a peace. No, you decided what you wanted God to tell you, and you violated the principle of Scripture, and you got what you wanted, and you attached God to it. We do that all the time. That's exactly what Sarah and Abraham did. Hey, this is what we want. We want a son. And so, God, you're not coming through in this way, so we're going to make it happen. To which God would say, I need you to quit helping me and trust me. (laughs) Now, I want to give you some practical application from this sermon. And I want us to look at seven ways that we can make good biblical decisions. Seven principles that if we will follow will greatly enhance our ability to make decisions that aren't just influenced by our taste and by our desires, but by good, solid biblical principles. Let's start off with number one. Have I continually prayed about this? Have I taken time? And by the way, we have something called YouVersion. Um, Cody, if you don't mind putting that YouVersion app up there. You can go and all these notes are always there. Every sermon that I do, our notes will always be there if you want to go to this and you can see them there. Uh, Back to the notes here though. Um, Have I continually prayed about this? Have I taken time to pray about it or am I just acting on impulse? Number two, does this violate scripture? Does this violate scripture? In other words, like Abraham And like Sarah did, hey, this is what I want you to do. They didn't have Scripture, but they had the Word of God. This is what I want you to do, but they violated Scripture. Can I tell you this? God never needs you to sin to accomplish His will. God's never going to lead you to do something that's sin, that violates Scripture. That's not Him. That's That's your own God that you've made up in your head. That's not the God of Scripture. Matter of fact, the way you you can know He is the God of Scripture, because a lot of times He's going to lead you to do things you don't want to do and not let you do things you do want to do. If not, it's just you making up a manifestation of God in your mind. That's why Scripture, sometimes we look at it and we go, well, I don't like that. That's how you know it's God. (laughs) Is this an emotional decision? I want this house. I want this car. God, do you want me to have this car? I feel it. God's telling me he wants me to buy that. No, he's not. (laughs) Can I tell you, that's not how God typically speaks. It's usually not emotional, and God's not, not doing this, and i got to run out and get it before somebody else gets it. No, that's you. So what you need to decide, can I afford this car? And if you don't have the money, it ain't God, okay? <laughs> have I sought godly, mature, spiritual wisdom? If you can get through these first four, you will be good for 95% of your decisions. Can you talk to people you trust, not somebody that just tells you what you want to hear and nods and says, whatever, But godly spiritual authority, godly spiritual wisdom, people that you respect, ask them them about before you make this decision. Does this make sense? Does this look like something I should walk through with? Is this a business venture I should engage in? Is this a relationship I should get? Is this a job I should take? Is this a house I should buy? Is this a car I should buy? What do you think? And given all the information, what do you think? 
Matter of fact, I did that with my wife's last car. We, we went and did that. I was not, it was funny because I was not going to buy that for her. And um, a couple of our elders said, no, you should buy your wife a car. So sometimes it can even work the other way. <laughs> I, I, that sounded really bad right there, didn't I? I that's not, <laughs> I'm not doing that next service. Do, do I have all the facts? Do I have all the facts? Do I have all the information? How many times have I talked to people who said this to me? You know, I wish I'd had all the information before I got into this deal. I should have gotten all the facts, but I got excited and I just jumped in. I wish I'd had stopped and waited and gathered more facts and had all the information. Number six. Have I counted the cost and the risk? What is this going to cost me? If I do this, what does this make my monthly nut? What does this make my cost? What does this mean I won't be doing? What am I saying no to in order to say yes here if I go through with this decision? And number seven, could this compromise my faith slash testimony? Would other people be honored, uh, honored by that? Would God be honored about this decision or would it be something I wouldn't want people to know or would it be one that people wrestle with because they know I'm participating in seven good principles of decision making from scripture those are again you can look each of those scriptures up uh, and they're in our U version notes there also will be a few hard copies outside so I want to go back to this Oswald Chambers, and this is a summary of what he says, what faith is, because sometimes we get confused about faith. And faith is this. Faith is doing everything that you honestly and ethically can and trusting the rest to God. Faith is doing everything you honestly and ethically can and trusting the rest to God. See, that's what God had called uh, of Sarah. That's what God had called uh, Abraham to do. I want you to trust me. And you're going to do what you can, but you're not going to violate the principles of my word. You're going to be honest, you're going to be ethical, and then you're going to trust what you cannot do to me. Faith is not. I'm not doing nothing. God's going to give me a job, he'll just give me one. That's not it. You're doing everything you honestly, you don't have to lie, you don't have to cheat, you don't have to misrepresent, but you do everything that you can, and then you trust God with the rest. That's what faith is. That's what real life faith is. So, I've shared this story before, but I think it's a great example right here for this morning. As we think about the sovereign God who sees, that we serve the sovereign God, the God who is in control, who sees not just today, but he sees the entire future. He sees eternity. So he knows. So he hears us, he sees, and we can trust in the sovereign God who sees, who watches over us. There was a man one time, an older man who didn't have much, but he had a beautiful white stallion, and he lived on a farm, and that horse's line had been in his family forever. So he had chosen to keep it, even though the king of that kingdom had once come through that village and said, uh, Mr., I will give you a large sum that will take care of you for the rest of your days if you will sell me that beautiful stallion. But the man said, no, sir, I don't believe I will. That's been, this horse line has been in my family for a long time, and I am choosing to keep it. He goes, even though you live a meager life, even though you barely make ends meet, yes, sir. And so his neighbor said, oh, oh man, what a fool you are. You had the opportunity for your horse to be sold and for your, your needs to be met, yet you rejected. What a fool you are. And the old man said, well, it's too early to tell at this point. Well, a couple weeks went by, and that horse ran off, and he was gone. 
And his neighbor again, see, old man, you were crazy. You had the opportunity to sell that horse, to make money, and you didn't. Now you've lost that horse, and you've lost everything, and now you're forced to just eke out a meager living the rest of your life. What a fool you are. And the old man said, well, it's too early to tell. A couple weeks later, that horse came back with three mares, three beautiful white mares. And his neighbor saw that, and he goes, oh, old man, you are so wise. You are so smart. You didn't listen to me, and... Your horse left, but now he's come back with three mares. How wise you are. And the old man said, well, it's too early to tell. The next week, the man was out there with his only son, and they were breaking those mares, getting ready to ride and to work, when one of those mares threw his son off and broke both of his legs, crippling him. And his neighbor came by, and he goes, oh, man, what a fool you are. What a fool you are! And you, you had this one horse that left. It came back with three horses. You could have sold them, but yet you chose not to. And now your only son, who helps you on this farm, has broken his legs. <clears throat> and now he's paralyzed, or now he's crippled. And, and what a fool you are! He goes, well, it's too soon still to tell. Sure, a couple months later, war broke out. And the king inscripted every male from that, every young male from that village to go and fight on the front lines. And almost every young man from that village was killed in the battle. A couple of them came back wounded and they told the story. And that neighbor came over having lost his son. And he said, oh man, you are so wise. You kept the horse whom the king wanted to buy. And it came back with three other horses. Your son's Broke his legs, breaking that horse. And because your son's legs were broken, he didn't have to go to war. Now we've lost our sons and you have your son. You're so wise. And the old man said, it's still too soon to tell. Can I tell you, I don't know what you're dealing with in your life today. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's your situation. But it's too soon to make the judgment. For the God of, of the universe says, I am the God who sees all things. I can work through all pain, through all, all situations, through all tragedies. And while it may be a total tragedy today, it may look like a train wreck today, can I tell you I am the God who redeems for his children. I can redeem all things for my glory, and that's the God we serve. The God Elroy, the Ishmael, the God who listens, the God who sees, the God who redeems all for his glory. Don't make your decisions today based on the small information that you have. Do what you can, honestly and ethically, and trust what you cannot see to the God who always sees everything. Do you know him? Pray with me. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And God, for some, uh, they are struggling. They are hurting today. I pray that you would let them know that you hear them and that you see them and that you are sovereignly in control and that for those who will faithfully trust you, God, you will redeem all diseases, all pains, all sickness, all brokenness for your glory. And Lord, while we may not even see it here on earth, we trust that you will redeem for your glory and for our good. And we come here this morning, Lord, believing Help us, Lord, not to be prideful, not to be impatient, not to be faithless, Lord, not to quit when things get hard, but to believe, even when it doesn't make sense, that you are in control and that you will sovereignly redeem this situation for your glory. So we put our trust and faith in you. If there's one that doesn't know you today, Lord, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.